0: Good evening everyone. Our reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 13 to verse 28. And that can be found on page 992 in the Red Church Bibles. So Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You should the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of a hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, Which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness.
1: Well, thank you, Beatrice. Uh, First of all, I know some of you have been worried all week about something I said last Sunday night's sermon. Uh, The mattress, the wrong mattress that was delivered has now been collected, and the correct mattress is now in place, Uh, so we're all sorted uh, for now. For other people who are concerned about such things, uh, I've slightly tweaked the title for tonight, so it's been changed to playing with words and playing at God, so for people who are interested in such things, that's a very slight change to what it was meant to be. And just a reminder that we're focusing on verses 16 uh, to 22 this evening as we look again at the woes of the Pharisees. Now I've mentioned before that we enjoy playing word games. Uh, Scrabble, boggle, upwards, bananagrams. It doesn't matter what the word game is, we enjoy playing with words. Um, but there are times when playing with words is not as much fun as we might think. On more than one occasion, we've had cause when we've been traveling uh, to change our travel plans, uh, or we've lost luggage, or something hasn't gone to plan. And I always think to myself, it's okay. That's why we have travel insurance. But invariably, as soon as I ring the travel insurance, I'm very quickly informed uh, that our insurance doesn't cover uh, the mishap that we've had on our journey. There always appears to be a loophole, a way out. It looks like they're just playing with words. Maybe you've watched some of those TV dramas that are set in the law world. And if you have, you've seen the very same thing. A case is taken against another person who has broken the terms of their contract. But, of course, the big law firm is brought in to go through the contract with a fine-tooth comb to find the loophole, the way out. They're experts at playing with words. Well, the Jewish religious leaders, it seems, have worked out an extremely complex system of oaths, distinguishing between those that are binding and those that are non-binding. Promises that you must keep, and promises that you don't need to keep. Finding loopholes, ways out, they're playing with words. Now, I'm guessing that when you were a child or even a teenager, you maybe had ways in which you thought you could avoid doing the thing that you said. There's the classic crossing your fingers and putting them behind your back. And we all know that if you do that, well, you don't have to keep the promise that you just made. But if you swore on your grandmother's grave, even though you had no idea what your dead grandmother was going to do about it, you were pretty sure that was a binding promise. Well, underneath all these O's is a very simple issue. Trustworthiness, honesty, reliability, integrity— Maybe remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told the crowds, do not swear at all. Again, he said, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. It comes from the evil one because he lures us into thinking that there are times when it is okay to speak falsely that there are certain occasions that don't require us to tell the truth. Well, the Pharisees have been deceived by the evil one. Like the big lawyer in his fancy suit, the evil one shows them the loophole in the contract. There's a way out. You didn't swear by the gift on the altar, did you? Great, that oath isn't binding. Please tell me you didn't swear by the gold of the temple, because if you did, there's absolutely nothing I can do for you. You see, the evil one has deceived them into thinking that truthfulness is negotiable, that honesty is debatable, that integrity is circumstantial. But worse still, as Israel's teachers they can teach others that obedience to God is optional. Jesus quickly points out that their thinking is illogical. It doesn't even make any sense. Can you spot the repeated question in verse 17 and in verse 19? What's the question that we see in both verses? Anybody? Thank you. Which is greater? And with that one question, Jesus exposes just how illogical their thinking is. You see, according to the Pharisees, if you made an oath based on the temple, well, that means nothing. You didn't have to keep your promise. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, well, then that oath was. Binding, there was no way of wriggling out of it. Well, hold on a minute, Jesus says in verse 17, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Well, the answer is obvious. It's not the gold that makes the temple special. It's the temple that makes the gold special. It's just regular gold that's been used for a special purpose. It's the same in verse 19. The Pharisees said that you weren't bound by an oath based on the altar. It means nothing. But if you swore by the gift on it, well, there was no wriggling out of it. Well, hold on a minute, Jesus says in verse 19, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Well, the answer is obvious. It's not the gift that makes the altar special. It's the altar that makes The gift's special. The animal offered as a sacrifice is just a regular animal until it's used for a special purpose. Their thinking is completely illogical. In fact, it would make more sense if you flipped it over and had it the other way around. At least there would be some logic to their arguments. There makes sense of what is lesser and what is greater but this makes no sense at all. Their thinking is illogical and they are foolish. In fact, Jesus calls them that numerous times. Verse 17, you blind fools. They think they're so smart that by playing with words, they found loopholes in God's commands that they can speak untruthfully and still be right before God." But their thinking is illogical, and they are foolish. In his book, Whiter Than Snow, Paul Tripp writes these words. Sin is all about foolishness. Sinners are fools who are able to convince themselves that they are wise. When I sin, I convince myself that my way is better than God's way that my thoughts are wiser than God's thoughts, that what I desire is better than what God has planned for me. Sin is all about foolishness, he writes, and he's absolutely right. Every time I sin, these are the thoughts, as illogical as they are, that are at work under the surface. My way It's better than God's way. It's not that I don't know what God wants. Ignorance isn't my problem. God has made it clear in Scripture. But God's way is not best. My way is better. And my thoughts are wiser than God's thoughts. I can think of all kinds of reasons why, in my circumstances... Obedience to God's commands is optional. You see, there are specifics to my personal situation known only to me, which if God had taken into account, well, wouldn't make this command binding on me. And what I desire is better than what God has planned for me. Underneath every sin, this thought lurks In the background. If God loved me. He would not withhold this. From me. It's the original lie. Of the evil one in the garden. And it's the strongest weapon. In his arsenal. If God really loved you. He would not keep this. From you. Sin is all. About foolishness. Our arguments aren't even logical. That my way is better than God's way. That my thoughts are wiser than God's thoughts. That what I desire is better than what God has planned for me. Well, we'd never say it out loud because we know just how stupid it sounds. But make no mistake, when we sin, those are the lies that we have believed in our hearts. And we've fallen for the deception of the evil one. As Jesus tries to pick apart the logic of the Pharisees, he seems to suggest that they're losing sight of God. They've become focused on the gifts but have lost sight of the God to whom the gifts are given. They're focused on the gold that makes the temple beautiful, but they've lost sight of the God who makes the temple glorious. They're focused on the fabric of the temple and not the function. So it's as though Jesus takes them on a virtual tour of the temple. Now, I'm one of those people who likes to know what to expect when I'm going somewhere. My children find it funny that before flying out of Dublin Airport, I would watch the video of the road to travel to the long stay car park before we go. Am I the only person ever to have watched that? On another occasion, we were helping friends look for a house to rent. And as we started to view the photographs online... Well, we started to play a game of who lives in a house like this. We spotted the surfboard in the corner, the exercise ball in the other room. We began to put the pieces together to work out who it was that lived in a house like this. Well, in a similar way, Jesus reminds both them and us who it is that lives in a house like this. The virtual tour begins in the outer courtyard of the temple by the altar in verse 20. He who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Well, the altar, of course, was the place of sacrifice. The place where justice and mercy meet. The place where the sinner comes before a holy God, conscious that their sins deserve death. And yet knowing that there's a promise of forgiveness for the repentant sinner who offers a sacrifice that dies in their place. It's bloody and it's gruesome, yet it's necessary if a holy God is to forgive their sins. In fact, without sacrifice, the virtual tour ends here at the altar. Access to the temple is denied. But next Jesus points to the temple itself in verse 21. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. He reminds them that the temple was God's dwelling place on earth. The symbol of God's presence among his people. In fact it was the very thing that made them different from all the other peoples of the earth. God was among them. And finally, Jesus points beyond the temple in verse 22 to heaven itself. He who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Oh, no temple could ever contain the God of heaven. He sits enthroned in the heavens, and the earth is his footstool. He rules over all of the earth. Now, this is the God that they have lost sight of. The holy God who shows mercy to sinners, offering them forgiveness. The holy God who has made his dwelling among his people, making them different from all the other peoples of the earth. The God of heaven who rules over all the earth and whom his people are to serve with integrity and faithfulness. Let me take you on another tour. We're going to start again at a place where justice and mercy meet. It too is a place of sacrifice. It too is bloody and gruesome. It's the place that all those animal sacrifices were pointing forward to. The final sacrifice that would deal with all sin for all time. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus. And here alone, forgiveness is extended to the repentant sinner. Let's continue on to another place that God has made his dwelling. The risen and exalted Lord Jesus would pour out his Spirit on his church so that God by his Spirit now dwells among his people. So that those who are trusting in Jesus are, in fact, God's temple. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes his people different from all other people, enabling them to live a life that is pleasing to God. And finally, let's lift our heads heavenward again. The crucified, risen, and exalted Lord Jesus will return from heaven to extend his rule over all of the earth. He will destroy all of his enemies and restore this world to the way that it was always meant to be. And on a new and restored earth, God's people will serve him forever. And until that time, we're to serve him with integrity and faithfulness. Yet how easy it is to lose sight of the God who sent his son to save us his spirit to sanctify us and who will return to rescue us. And when we do just like the Pharisees, we find it all too easy to find loopholes in God's commands, ways out to make obedience optional. Let me introduce you to John. He wanted to ask me something. He and his girlfriend had been dating for some time. In fact, they just recently got engaged. But he was still in college and finishing off his course, and they certainly didn't have the finances to start life together. They decided that marriage was still a little while off. Now, you know what John is thinking, because John is not the first person to have this thought. Surely it wouldn't be wrong for us, to sleep together after all we're engaged and we're committed to each other the only thing that's preventing us from getting married is our finances surely god understands that if we were financially able we'd get married tomorrow wouldn't we be married in the eyes of god anyway john is desperately looking for loopholes He's already decided the answer to his questions. He just wants me to assure him that this won't be wrong before God. Well, John went home disappointed. In fact, maybe sorry he ever came to talk to me at all. Because obedience to God is never optional. Not to the God who sent his son to save us, his spirit to sanctify us, and who will return to rescue us. Just like the Pharisees and my friend John, it's too easy to lose sight of God and to reduce everything to a horizontal level of dealings between one person and another, forgetting that there's a different dimension to life, a vertical one between us and God. We think that breaking a promise is only between us and another person, we forget that when we are untrustworthy, it dishonors our God. We think that filing tax returns correctly is only between us and the revenue commissioners without any thought that God is concerned about our integrity. If we cheat on a test, will we know that we've given ourselves an unfair advantage over our fellow students, but we've thought nothing of how our dishonesty grieves God. It's too easy to lose sight of God and to see life purely on a horizontal level between one person and another. Well, that's what the Pharisees have done. They've lost sight of God and they are spiritually blind. Did you notice the repetition of the word blind throughout our passage? First in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides! Again, in verse 17, you blind fools. Once more in verse 19, you blind men. They have lost sight of God, and they are spiritually blind. Well, just over four years ago, we spent a weekend away with some family members. One evening, we were playing some games together, and when it came my turn to read the cards, for the game, um, I really started to find it difficult and began to complain. The words on this card are so small. It's ridiculous. How's anybody expected to read words this small? The light in this room is so dim. I can't even read the cards that are in front of me. Well, one family member eventually got fed up with my complaining and just said, Martin, I think you need to go and get your eyes checked. Sure enough, there was nothing wrong with the cars. There was nothing wrong with the lights in the room. The problem was me. I needed glasses. But I'd been completely unaware of it. You know, that's the strange thing about spiritual blindness. How unaware we can be of it. The Jewish religious leaders can bring gifts to God's altar. They can worship at God's temple They can teach others God's words and yet be spiritually blind. Worse still, they can be blind guides trying to show others God's ways while they can't even see the way themselves. Now maybe, just maybe, that describes someone here this evening. It's not just that you've lost sight of God, It's much worse than that. You're spiritually blind. On one level, you're doing all the right things, the religious things. You come to church, you listen to the Bible teaching, you pray, but you know that you're not seeing what other people are seeing. You've yet to see what Jesus did for you on the cross. You've yet to see the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in the life of the person who's trusting in Jesus. You've yet to know the hope that is found in knowing that Jesus will return to restore both the world and you to the way that you're meant to be. And if that's you, you simply need to look to Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself. To make you see The Jewish religious leaders have been playing with words and they're playing at God, putting themselves in the place of God. But their thinking is illogical and they are foolish. They've lost sight of God and they are spiritually blind. The evil one has deceived them into thinking that truthfulness is negotiable, that honesty is debatable, that integrity is circumstantial. But worse still, that they can teach others that obedience to God is optional. And for that reason, Jesus declares God's judgment upon them. You see, when we start playing with words, the words of Scripture, making obedience to God optional, we're playing at God's putting ourselves in the place of God. Remember, my way is better than God's ways. My thoughts are wiser than God's thoughts. What I desire is better than what God has planned for me. At best, well, we've simply lost sight of God and need to have our eyes refocused to bring him back into our thinking. We need to be taken on that virtual tour to see once again the God who sent his son to save us, his spirit to sanctify us, and will return to rescue us. At worst, we're spiritually blind, needing God to make us see. And what we don't need... What you don't need are people who will show you loopholes in God's commands and affirm that obedience is optional. Blind guides who can't even see the way that they are going. Sadly, I've had too many conversations, even with grown men, and had to say these words... This is the kind of conversation I usually have with a teenage boy. Someone who should be spiritually mature is playing with words and playing at God. They've already decided what they want to do and they're just trying to justify their behavior. But their thinking is illogical and they are foolish. They're losing sight of God and they're behaving like those who are spiritually blind. Well, let's not behave as those who are spiritually blind. Not if we know that God has sent his Son to save us, his Spirit to sanctify us, and will return to rescue us. Let's grasp that obedience is never optional, that my way is never better than God's way, that my thoughts are never wiser than God's thoughts. That what I desire is never better than what God has planned for me. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that too often we fall into this trap that we are deceived by the evil one into thinking that we know best and our way is better. That we can find all kinds of reasons to worm our way out of your commands for us. But Father, may you assure us that you sent your Son to die for us, that you've given your Spirit to sanctify us, and that Jesus will return to rescue us. And Lord, then may we have this confidence that your way is best, that your thoughts are wiser, and that absolutely nothing is better than what you have planned for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.